James chapter 5. There are also Bibles in the chair in front of you. You can find our passage on page 1013. Uh, so we're ending our series in the book of James this week. And next week, we'll do a short four-week series during the season of Advent. So next Sunday is the first Sunday of the season of Advent. And uh, the season of Advent is the preparation, is the longing, the looking forward to of the coming of Jesus. And so as been our practice over the last few years, we'll look at some passages that focus our attention on Jesus' coming. And so we'll look at Matthew 1 and 2 for over the course of four weeks. But before we get to Matthew, we need to finish with James. And in James chapter 5, we're going to see a repeated theme. In fact, we've actually uh, heard again and again, if you've been with us uh, for a few weeks or for the whole series, you've heard that the, the, the primary theme maybe, or, or the, the uh, theme that continues to filter itself through in the book of James is that we are not only to be hearers of the word, but we are to be doers of the word. That as God's people, we are to not only have a faith that we, we understand, that we believe, but this faith should produce action. That true faith will produce obedience to God's word. And this morning, James is ending his letter by showing us how we are to do this, not simply as individuals, but in community. And so let's go ahead and read James 5, beginning in verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven." Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man of prayer with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we know that your word is good and it is right. That it is in your word that we learn about you and what it means to follow you. And so we pray, I pray that you would now Open our eyes and unclog our ears and soften our hearts and fix our hands to do your will. Lord, we are in need of your help. Show us how we are to live. We are in need of your grace today and all of our days. And so I ask that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts to please you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Um, is this microphone still on? I'm starting to get a little bit of feedback. Is anyone else getting it? Just me? Okay, just me. I can deal with it. So, um, well, believe it or not, when I was a kid uh, growing up in southern Ontario, um, we, uh, we watched football 
on Sunday afternoons like a lot of families. And, and you would think that growing up in southern Ontario, not far from the New York border, that, that we would see on our TVs week in, week out, the Buffalo Bills or the New York Giants or the New York Jets or, or maybe the Detroit Lions. Or, or if you were a little farther south, a little farther to the west, maybe the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, one of these teams that are closer to the Great White North, right? That's what you would think you would see every Sunday. But, but growing up, the, the team that was broadcast for some reason on our televisions every single Sunday afternoon was the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> now, uh, you, you know, your geography, you know, Dallas is kind of far from Burlington, Ontario, Canada, but that's who they broadcast. And, and so the Dallas Cowboys became my favorite NFL football team. And in the early 90s, they were a great team to cheer for because it was in the early 90s that the Cowboys were winning Super Bowls, and this was the era of Troy Aikman and Michael Irvin and my favorite player, Emmitt Smith. So if you know anything about football, you know that Emmitt Smith is one of the greatest football players of all time, right? Little short guy, about 5'9", 200-something pounds, but he could hit that hole, and he could bounce off tacklers, and he was just a great, great running back. And he had an amazing career, he has the most career rushing yards of any running back. He's a three-time Super Bowl champion, a, a Super Bowl MVP, a, a league MVP, and a Hall of Famer. People adored Emmett Smith. They sang his praises and chanted his name. Even if you were just a casual fan in the early 90s, you would know who Emmett Smith was. You had heard his name. Right? We knew Emmett Smith, and we still remember Emmett Smith today. But you know who we don't remember? We don't remember those giant men who stood in front of Emmett Smith pushing the line forward. We don't remember those guys, right? This past week, I mean, the Dallas Cowboys were my favorite team, and so this past week I was trying to remember all those linemen, right? 6'6", 320 pounds, and they could move, and I was trying to remember, and I came up with one name. I can remember one name. And even in the early 90s, when they were my favorite team, I could have only named maybe two or three of those linemen. I couldn't name the whole line. Right? We forgot about those guys. We ignored those guys. Those aren't the guys that you celebrate and that you rejoice over and that are given all kinds of fanfare, right? That's reserved for Emmett Smith. But Emmett Smith knew better than that. You see, in 1991, after he had won his rushing title that year, he remembered his linemen. He gave to each of his linemen a gift, and the gift was a $5,000 Rolex watch. And on the back of the watch, he had engraved, thanks for the 1,563 yards. 1991 rushing title, Emmett Smith. You see, Emmett Smith knew that it was his name that would be forever associated with those 1,500 yards. And Emmett Smith knew it was his name that would go down in the record books. And Emmett Smith knew that it was his name that would be celebrated. But Emmett Smith also knew that he would have gone none of those yards apart from those men. He said, thanks for the yards. Thanks for opening up holes. Thanks for pushing those would-be tacklers away. You see, what Emmett Smith realized is that he needed those linemen. That he couldn't be the running back that he was apart from them. That he needed them. That he could not be a great football player on his own. And friends, that's what the Christian life is like. You see, God doesn't call us as Christians to be Lone Ranger Christians. That doesn't exist. 
that, 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 that cannot be found in the scripture, that we are lone ranger Christians. What God does is he calls us into his church, into his people, so that we would be a community, so that we would be a people who need one another, that we would care for one another, that we are not left on our own, but that, that this place is not just a place of me, but it is a place of we. That we are in need of this community. And that's how James is concluding this letter. You see, James is focusing on some different themes in the end of chapter 5. But, but the unifying theme is that we are all in need of one another. We are in need of care that one another can provide. We are in need of the support that one another provides. That we are not just to live as me, but we are to live as we. And we demonstrate this need, we demonstrate it first by speaking truth to one another. That's where James began. It's been a while since he's talked about our tongue and about words, right? But, but he's done it, what, three or four times already, and he returns to that theme in verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So as James has done previously, he's now picking up a theme, on a theme that Jesus himself taught on in the Sermon on the Mount. So you remember in Matthew chapter 5, it, it really, just as a side note, it is fascinating, isn't it, how dependent James is on the Sermon on the Mount. I feel like it's like 9 out of 10 sermons. It's like, hey, go back to the Sermon on the Mount, y'all. Then he does it again because Jesus gave almost the exact same teaching verbatim in Matthew chapter 5 that James gives here, that we are to let our yes be yes and our no be no. Now, when we think about that in the context of oaths and of vows, it might seem a little strange to us, right? Because we only think about, we only use oaths and vows in formal occasions, right? Giving testimony in a court of law or an ordination, an installation service, or, or a wedding, right? People give oaths, they give vows, Right? And we use them as a way of saying that what we're about to say is truthful. Right? You, can, you can put your money on it. You can bank on it. What I'm about to say is truthful. That's how we use oaths and vows today. But in the first century, the Jewish rabbis, they had this convoluted system of oaths and vows. You see, they, they had this system worked out so that there were ways that you could get out of your oath. That some of them were binding and some were not. So for instance... If you swore by Jerusalem, well, that swearing, that oath, it wasn't binding. But if you made your oath swearing as you faced Jerusalem, towards Jerusalem, then that was binding. Or, or if you made an oath, if you swore by the temple, well, that one you could get out of. But if you made your oath, you swore by the gold of the temple, then you had to keep that oath. You see, they created a way of not having to be bound by their word. It was kind of like the kid who says, I promise to do it as they cross their fingers behind their back, right? Or, but, but you know, like if you do two, like that negates the two, right, kids? So like you really are promising, so the kid's like this, you know. They got to have the odd number, right? So that they can get out of it. Now, kids, that, it's binding. It doesn't matter how many fingers you cross, okay? Let me, parents, you heard me say that, okay? But, but, but that's what they're doing. 
that's what the Jewish rabbis were doing. They were basically saying there are some of those, well, you need to keep them and some you don't need and, and we'll kind of create this system so I don't have to be bound by my word. And what James is telling us is what Jesus told us is that for the people of God, this convoluted system, this way of weaseling our way out of our oath or our vow or of our word, that doesn't exist. You need to let your yes be yes and your no be no. You see, we shouldn't operate with these strange sorts of principles or even need to call on the name of God to ensure what we're about to say is truthful. Instead, our default, our, our operating principle should be that what comes out of my mouth is true. And what I hear from y'all's mouths should be honest. That Christians don't need to say, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, right? That, that just what we say is right. It is true. It is the whole truth. You see, the default posture of the Christian is that we're going to be truthful with each other. That, that we need to live together in this manner of speaking truthfully. That this is how we demonstrate our care for one another, but, and this is how we demonstrate our need for one another. That we need truthful words. But, but James doesn't just stop there. He moves on and he shows us that we also show our need for one another by praying for each other. And this is where he spends the majority of his time. And so that, this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. In verses 13 through 18, James uses the word prayer seven different times. So in those few verses, seven times he references prayer. And what he tells us is that the people of God that we show our need, our care for one another by praying for one another when we're sick. Look at verses 13 and 14. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So you heard it, suffering, pray, sick, prayer. That's what we are to be. Now before we move on, I need to note that that these verses have at times been misused by very well-intentioned believers. Because they can hear these words and think, well, what James is saying is that if you're sick, if you're not feeling well, if you've got disease, don't go to the doctor, don't get medicine, just pray. And if you pray enough, the disease will go away. And, and so you don't need to worry about it. Like, and maybe you haven't heard someone say that, but, but there are those out there who would interpret these verses this way. But that's not what James is talking about. He's not saying that if you are sick, all you need to do is pray. I mean, we know that scripture informs us that, that there are times when we should use things like oil or wine in scripture medicinally. And Paul himself, on his missionary journeys, he traveled with a physician, Luke, the writer of the gospel and the writer of Acts. And we know that God, out of his mercy, has given us the benefit of medicine and and doctors. And so James isn't dismissing our need for medical care. He's simply emphasizing the need for prayer in addition to that. As one theologian put it, the, the doctor dresses the wound, but we all know that it is God that heals the wound. We benefit from medicine, the abilities of doctors and nurses, but it is God who heals. And so acknowledging that, we are to pray for one another. 
And specifically, this is the work of the elders. That's what he said, right? Go to the elders and ask them to anoint with oil and to pray. That this is one of the great privileges and the greatest shepherding responsibilities that elders have is to pray for you. And that's how we spend a lot of our session meetings, right? A a lot of our time as we are meeting as elders, a a good bit of our time is spent praying for y'all. Praying that you would have healing when you are sick. Praying that God would heal your relationships. Praying for you. In fact, Tuesday night or Wednesday night as we're out there, some of you walk through the gathering area and you would have heard prayer. It's one of the great privileges. That's what we do. We pray for the people of God. Then elder is to be a man of prayer because this is one of the great responsibilities that we have which is all well and good, but you're probably sitting there and thinking, well, Penny, I love that people would pray for me, but, but I'm a little nervous because if I call for prayer, then you guys might be knocking at my door with a bottle of canola oil and ready to douse me. What is all this about oil? <laughs> Don't worry, every time you call, we're not ready to throw some oil on your head. But, but, but what's going on here is, is a little bit debated. Um, Some people think that James is talking about oil in a medicinal way. And there is no question that there are instances in Scripture where oil is used medicinally. But but it's actually very, very rare. And also, we know that oil can't solve every problem, right? No, I think what's going on here is not the medicinal benefit of oil, but it's actually the setting apart of someone. You see, oil and the anointing of oil is used most frequently in Scripture as a way of setting someone apart to receive God's blessing. That that as someone comes for prayer, that the elders would, would anoint them, and in doing so, we are asking for God's particular blessing to come upon that person. It doesn't mean that the oil heals, because in verse 15, the emphasis is on prayer, but, but it's a way of setting apart and asking for God's special healing upon that person. And this is what we are to be. A people who would pray, not just as elders to pray for the healing of one another, but but we are to be a people who would pray for one another. But James doesn't just tell us to pray for each other for our physical needs, but he also talks about our spiritual needs. That we pray for each other when we sin. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You notice how James is blurring the line between physical and spiritual needs here? Like verses 13 and 14, even moving into verse 15, it's clear he's talking about physical needs. But then in verse 15, he then says, if he has committed sin. So he's blurring the line, right? Like like there is a, a, a connection sometimes to our physical uh, sickness, our physical infirmities, and actually sin. That's, that's what it seems like he's saying, isn't it? That that's the implication. That we may be sick because of our sin. And And that doesn't mean that every illness or every physical suffering is a result of sin, because Jesus himself in John chapter 9 made that clear. Do you remember in John 9, someone came to Jesus and said, this man who is blind, whose sin caused his blindness? Do you remember this? Was it his mother's sin or his father's sin? And what did Jesus say? He's like, y'all are asking the wrong questions. 
It wasn't anyone's sin that made this man blind. He's blind so that they would see my glory. And so there Jesus is saying that sometimes sin and sickness or sickness and suffering aren't necessarily related directly to someone's sin. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul talks about the abuse of the Lord's Supper, he says that those who are abusing the Lord's Supper because of their sin, some of you have become sin, sick and even have died. So which is it? Well, yes. <laughs> Sometimes our sin is related to our physical suffering, and sometimes our sin, our physical suffering has nothing to do with our particular sin. But regardless, we do know that our sin affects us spiritually, and so what are we to do? Well, James tells us, we confess our sins to one another and we pray for one another so that you may be healed. Do you hear that? Do you desire healing? Do you want relief from sin? James says you need to confess. And he needs, you need to confess to one another. So the question that we should be asking is, who are you confessing to? Who knows your sin? Who knows the sins that you keep locked in the deep recesses of your mind and of your heart? Now, I'm not saying that everyone needs to know all of your sin. I'm not saying that, you know, after the service, we'll just start a line and everybody can come up and you can stand up here and just bury your entire soul before. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Take a deep breath. Not everyone needs to know all of your sin, but all of your sin needs to be known. So who knows? You know, I have a friend, his name is Travis. Uh, Travis is one of my best friends my best friends, he's one of my closest friends. And he and I talk regularly, almost every month, every other month usually. We talk very regularly and I love seeing Travis's name pop up on my phone because Travis and I have a lot in common. He's a pastor, he's a husband, he's got three kids, you know, all similar things to me. Um, and, and I love talking to Travis because uh, when we talk, we laugh and we uh, we uh, update one another on our families, and we get to connect in deep ways, and, and it's wonderful, and he makes fun of me, and I make fun of him, and, and we all feel really good about it, and it's really fun. I love seeing his name pop up on my phone, but I have to tell you that every once in a while when his name pops up, I dread it. I dread it because I know that at some point after we've poked fun at each other and after we've laughed and shared about how things are going with our families and our churches, that Travis is probably going to ask me about my sin. You see, he and I, we get notifications. We get weekly notification, both of us, that reminds us to pray for one another and then to ask one another about our sin. And so we do. We call and we laugh and we joke and then we say, well, what have you been thinking about? What, what have you been saying with your lips? What have you been doing with your hands? What, what's going through your heart? And I have to tell you, like, those aren't fun questions. Right? Like, to bear your sin before another, that, that's not very fun. And, and in my pride, and in my fear, and in my shame, I don't want to confess. And neither does he. It is very hard to be exposed in that way. 
and it is very good. It is very good because when we bring our sin into the light, when it is exposed, sin begins to lose its grip and its power over our lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, once said, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will, the will be the power of sin over him. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. It doesn't want to be known. It wants to remain hidden. Bonhoeffer is just saying what David said in Psalm 32 when talking about his own iniquity. David said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. My bones wasted away. But Bonhoeffer goes on. It poisons the whole being of the person, but... In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. It's brought into the light. And when we confess our sin and we expose it to the light of the gospel, we don't hear shame and we don't hear guilt. What we hear is grace and mercy. What we hear is prayer you see, as hard as it is for me to confess my sin to Travis and for Travis to confess his sin to me, what we end with isn't sin, but what we end with is grace and kindness. And we hear words like, Penny, those are the sins that Christ died for. And Penny, you are no longer under condemnation, but you are under mercy. That those are the words that we hear for one another and we speak to one another when we hear confession and we hear prayer that we would know God's forgiveness of our sins, prayer that we would turn from our sins, prayer that we would live as a people that are fleeing from sin, prayers that we would find healing in God's grace. Friends, I need that. And you need that. That we confess our sins and pray for each other. Now, some of you might be saying, that's all well and good, Penny, but, but I've read on in verse 16, and I'm no righteous person. Right at the end of verse 16, it says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. And so maybe you're sitting there going, I have no problem being the one who confesses, but the one who hears confession, I am no righteous person to offer prayers. And in of yourself, you are absolutely right. And in of myself, you would be right. But the Bible tells us that if you are trusting in Christ and his perfect, righteous working on your behalf, that if you are trusting in Christ and his perfect and righteous sacrifice on the cross for your sins, then what the Bible tells us is that though we are not righteous in of ourselves, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. So that we now, as Christ's people, can approach the throne of grace. We heard it in our assurance of pardon, didn't we? That we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness and he bids us, he welcomes us, he encourages us to approach the throne of grace with confidence and with boldness. Calling out to our Father 
and we approach it with confidence and boldness, this throne of grace, not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. That is why every one of us can go before the Lord, and we can ask on behalf of one another that God would heal, that God would forgive, that we would know this grace. Friends, what a wonderful gift it is that we can pray for one another, that we can we can care for one another in this way. I need this. I need you to pray for me. And you need me to pray for you. And we need one another to pray for each other. That to live as the people of God means that we need one another to pray for one another. But finally, James tells us that we demonstrate this need, not just through prayer, not just by speaking the truth to one another, but finally, by pursuing each other. And this is going to be shorter, so we're okay. But verses 19 and 20, James says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So the picture that James gives us is that a man or a woman in our midst would wander, right? They would be led astray by their flesh or by the world or by the devil. And the posture that we are to have towards that person who wanders isn't that we wipe our hands clean. It's not that we say, you know what, you, you wandered, you sinned, and we are done with you. No, did you hear what the posture is? That we would pursue them, that we would seek them out. It reminds me of the parable of of the lost sheep that Jesus tells, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one who went astray? And the answer to that rhetorical question is what? It is yes. You leave the 99 to go search out that one who has been led astray. We seek those out who stray and we search out those who get lost and we pursue those who wander. And we do it not so when we find them that we would shame them or guilt them about their sin or their wandering, but so that they would be restored. Right? That's what James told us. Someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James isn't saying that the one who pursues is the one who saves his soul. He's saying that the one who, who is turned back, who returns from his wandering, is received back into the community and hears words of grace, his soul is saved. He knows this forgiveness. That this is what we're to be, a people who pursues. When one strays, when one wanders, we search out and pursue them in hopes that they would be restored. And friends, ultimately we do this not not just because all of us are prone to wander, because actually we are. We actually sing of that in Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, that beautiful hymn, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Right, left to our own devices, left to our own flesh, our own sin, we would be prone to wander, every one of us. But that's not why we pursue those who may wander, who may leave. We don't do it just because we can sympathize with them. We do it because God has done that for us. He has pursued you and he has pursued me. Right? He pursued us by sending his son to bring us to himself. He did not leave us in our sin, but he sought us and he saved us. 
And friends, as those who have been pursued, how can we not, when a brother or sister wanders, not pursue them? This is what it means to need one another. This is what it means to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. That we would care for one another in this way. This is how we are to live as God's people and how we do it together. You see, James has been giving us this, this whole book. I'm, I'm actually quite sad we're finishing. But James has been giving us every single week a picture of the Christian life. Of what it means not only to believe the gospel, but to have a belief that is evident in our lives. To show what, what truly hearing the gospel does, that it changes every part of our lives, that it changes our words so that we speak truthfully. Right? It changes our, our prayers so that we would pray for one another. It, it changes the way we even pursue one another. It changes everything about us to be doers of the gospel to obey Christ, and we do this together. We don't do it alone, we do it together, and so people of God, Christ the King, hearers of the gospel, let us be doers, let us care, and show our need for each other by speaking truthfully, and by praying, and by pursuing one another. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have not left us alone, but you have given us your word and you have given us your spirit and you have given us your body of which we are joined to. You have given us your people of which we are members of. And so I pray that not just today, but every day we would live as your people, that we would care for one another, that we would need one another, that we would love one another and serve one another. And so give us words of truth, Give us prayers for each other when we are sick and sorrowing. Father, give us pursuit of those who may wander away. Help us to be your people for the glory of your name and for the good of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen.